Please stand. Exodus chapter 4, verse number 1. And Moses answered the Lord and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice. For they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. And the Lord said unto him, What is that in thine hand? And Moses said, A rod. And God said, Cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. And the Lord said unto Moses, Put forth thine hand, and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand, and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, hath appeared unto thee. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd strengthen us in our faith, in our service, in our understanding of our great and powerful holy God. May we understand how weak we are, how desperately we need your blessing. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm calling this lesson this evening, Taking the Bull by the Horns. But there's an obvious uh, sleight of hand here because we're not talking about uh, bulls or horns at all. To take the bull by the horns probably originated in the American West and the cowboy culture at some point. Sometimes it's necessary for the cowboy to get up close and personal with the stubborn steer. Whether we're talking about a rodeo or in actual cowboy life. And of course, the phrase has come to mean dealing head on with some particular problem. Taking the bull by the horns, throwing it down, solving that problem, and then going on to the next steer. Well, grabbing the serpent's tail may be similar in meaning, but it runs a bit deeper. Coming not from cowboy life, but from the Word of God. I have read this chapter many times. I've taught from it a time or two, but it was usually in haste. I was usually going other places, not stopping very long in the first to four or five verses. I've never delved very deeply here, thinking uh, that, well, we've got more important things to do. But the Lord laid it on my heart, and looking at it again for a number of hours earlier on in this week, it occurred to me that there, there are some real blessings in here, some opportunities for strength and for growth. So let's just have a very quick verse-by-verse uh, -verse study. My outline is five points. Verse 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Verse number 1, And Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. This is a part of the conversation that God had with Moses as that man was standing barefoot in front of the burning bush. The burning bush is in the previous chapter. The Lord was giving this 80-year-old man... we got a ways to go, Brother Berg. He's given this 80-year-old man a commission. I've got a job for you to do. Let's, let's go and take care of this. The commission was to lead Israel out of Egypt. He had revealed himself to Moses. 
I am that I am. Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. What an honor it is to be in service to the king. No matter what he's commissioning us to do, our, our response should be, Speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. Or, Lord, what would thou have me to do? Moses' reply was, But, Lord, but, Lord are, are you sure about this? Are you sure about this? Just five verses prior to chapter 4, the Lord had said, They shall hearken to thy voice. And still Moses answers the Lord, replies to the Lord saying, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice. I, I hope that you can see how this is applicable to all of us. How many times have we said, But God, are you sure about this? Some burden that he's laid on our heart. Some sacrifice that uh, we think the Lord, well, well, it's probably not the Lord. Something else has burdened me about this. Are you sure, God? Are you sure about this? You want me to do this? I don't know. I'm not so sure. Many writers commenting on this verse tried their very best to tone down Moses' reply. Pro-Israel, pro-Moses. He didn't really mean what it appears that he's saying. Some say that he was only talking about the common people. The leaders of Israel, they will believe me, but the common people, the, the mass of Israel, they're, they're not going to believe me. Or the other way around. The leaders of Israel won't believe me, but the others will. These are explanations I have read. Others explain this by saying, Israel won't believe right away. Lord, what should I do to bring them around? How shall I correct to this? Some try to insert a what if into the equation. But what if they don't believe me, Lord? What should I do then? But honesty demands that I point out none of that is here. Moses says, they won't believe me. What should I do? They won't believe me. He probably remembers what happened 40 years earlier. He thought at that point, I will bring Israel out of Egypt. So he intervenes and he separates a bully from his victim. In fact, he kills the bully. And he justifies what he has done. But it doesn't work out the way he wanted it to. There was no what if about it. Who made thee a prince and a ruler over us, says the Israelite to Moses. Who are you to take charge here? What if? What if, Lord, you want me to do this? Behold, they will not believe me. They will not hearken unto my voice. They didn't then, and they aren't going to do it now. I don't trust anyone in Israel to believe that you have spoken to me or commissioned me. I believe that you have done these things, but I don't believe any of them 
some are going to trust my testimony. They will not hearken. Notice what Moses was doing. It takes us back to uh, lesson Sunday night, maybe last Wednesday. He was transposing his worries, his unbelief, his excuses onto the backs of other people. He didn't have any right to say that Israel would not believe him, even if there was a likelihood that they would. If God is behind Moses and he steps up and he says, the Lord wants me to deliver you all from Egypt, then the Lord could make them all believe instantly, if the Lord chose to do that. Moses was one of those half-glass-empty people. He was pulling a, a potential problem from tomorrow and applying it to his today. What if? There was no what if. They will not believe. Moses, what have I told you to do? Just go and do it. Don't worry about their response. This was ruining his fellowship with the Lord. You don't raise your finger and say, Lord, I don't know about that. That doesn't go well. If we want to truly enjoy the fellowship of our Savior, we need to deal with our unbelief. Don't worry about the next guy's unbelief. It's ours that's crucial here. I think we have grounds to criticize Moses. But we better do it humbly because he's just an image of us here. We can criticize or condemn Moses because we know the end of the story. We know what's going to happen. Israel will be redeemed. They will be brought out of Egypt. But we don't criticize ourselves in the same situation because we're looking off into the fog and we can't see the end and we're pretty sure they won't believe us. Why should I preach the gospel again? It's been wasted on these people for years. Why should I do it again? I have a commission. Lord, it's going to end up in a disaster. Is that something we should ever tell the omnipotent God? Lord, your plan's going to fail. Sit down, Moses. Shut your mouth. Perhaps while looking askance toward Moses, we should acknowledge the example that he's given to us. Sure, he lacked faith. Yes, he's on the verge of disobedience. But what did he do about his problem? He took it to the Lord. He didn't talk to his wife about it. He took it to the Lord. He didn't go see a psychiatrist. He took it to the Lord. Wasn't it essentially, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief? That's a good thing to do. Speak to the Lord about it. I have a weakness in this area. Well, the only way this weakness is going to be overcome is with God's grace. So talk to the Lord about this problem, your problem, this weakness that I have. 
In a roundabout way, he admitted that he had a problem. And he took that problem to the perfect uh, resolution station. He took it to the Lord. Verse 2. And the Lord said unto him, What is that in thine hand? And he said, A rod. The Lord is so gracious, so understanding. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax he shall not quench till he send forth judgment unto victory. Matthew 12, verse 20. God didn't even say, as I quite often do in my great superiority, what did I just tell you? There wasn't any of that. The Lord could have slapped Moses to the ground. He could have been very harsh with this man. He could, he could have crushed him. Moses is kind of fragile. Just think about it. He's, he was defeated 40 years earlier and this has been in the back of his mind for a long, long time now and God could have, have brought his future ministry to a conclusion before it ever started. But the Lord didn't do that. Exodus 3.18 They shall hearken to thy voice. But the Lord didn't even bring that up. What is that in thine hand? What have you got there? God didn't rebuke his servant as he was justified to do. He simply asked a question. The Lord asked a question. What is that in thine hand? Moses may have been yattering away. Or he may have been quiet and his brain was just running wild trying to uh, figure out what's next. And the Lord simply forced him to stop. What is that in thine hand? How did the Lord ask that question? How does the Lord ask what was going on here? Did he hear a voice? I assume so. What is that in thine hand? What am I holding? There's Moses standing there with that shepherd's crook in his hand, not even thinking about it. What is that in thine hand, Moses? Well, it's, it's my, my shepherd's rod. As you can see, it's my staff. It's one of the tools that I use in, in the care and the direction of, of my sheep. Of course, the Lord didn't ask the question because he didn't know what it was. God doesn't ask questions to learn stuff. Right. He knows everything. So why does he ask the question? Stop for a minute, Moses. Look around. Consider. We see this time and time again in the Word of God. We see the Lord Jesus asking this sort of question. What is that in thine hand? These questions are given to us to make us focus. What is that in your hand, Moses? Pay attention. I'm going to use something you know very well. But I'm going to use it in a way that you've never seen it used before. What is that in thine hand, Moses? Take it. Look at it. Look into the barrel. See how little oil there is in the cruise? See how little grain there is left in the barrel? What is 
in that barrel. Water, you say? Well, dip some of that water out and present it to the governor of the feast and see what he says that it is. What is that in your hand? What has the Lord given to you, given to us? Moses was holding a shepherd's crook. It may have been six feet tall. It may have been eight or nine feet, I don't know. It could have been pretty good size. Verse three. And God said, cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground. And it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. A six foot rod became a serpent when it hit the ground. And in my imagination, I'm going to say that the serpent was the same size and length as the rod. Why not? That's, that's no small snake. If it was a cobra, six-foot cobra, eight-foot cobra, that's an exceptional serpent. That's, that's no baby rattler. This is, this is a pretty good size serpent. Some cobras can even spit their poison with deadly accuracy many feet. They don't have to strike their victims. When the Lord said, cast your rod on the ground, how did Moses do that? How would you have done it if you were in his... Uh, I was going to say shoes, but if you were standing there in your stocking feet, uh, I would have just thrown it right there, just right next to me. What he should have done is thrown it way over there, but he didn't think about that. He just plopped it on the ground. That's all there was to it. Didn't toss it very far. No matter how far it was, it wasn't far enough for a man in bare feet. Not at all. After 40 years on the backside of the desert, Moses was very familiar with the serpents of that region. I did a little Googling, and there's quite a few poisonous serpents in that part of the world. This was probably as terrifying as anything the Lord might have done to Moses at that point. He's standing in front of a burning bush. He got over that. Now we have this six-foot snake. I'll call it a cobra just because it's just the vision is nasty. The image is negative. At this point, I'm tempted to follow the example of the commentaries, but I'm going to restrain myself as I quite often do. I, I like to read what these other people say and then quite often throw them away. Moses fled from a very large snake. He didn't look down and picture the devilish serpent that beguiled Eve. He didn't immediately say, ah, oh, there's Eve's nemesis. And probably not initially did it even cross his mind that Pharaoh, that back in Egypt, those people worshipped these creatures. 
And Pharaoh had uh, these serpents on all sorts of clothing and, and uh, uh, crowns that he wore as picturing his power. I don't think Moses considered that when he saw this serpent at his feet. It was a snake. Let's not try to make it anything more than that. It was a snake. Did it have other meaning? I, I don't know. While saying that, I will add that snakes are among the most feared of all creatures, generally speaking. And to look at this as a picture of our worst fear is not doing disservice to the scripture at all. Moses jumped back and took a few steps away because this was a dangerous creature and he was frightened. Is anyone going to criticize Moses for jumping back and running away from the thing? You go ahead and criticize if you want. I'm not going to do that. And the Lord said unto Moses, verse 4, Put forth thine hand and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. Why wasn't Moses bitten by this serpent? It was certainly within striking range. The herpetologist might say that the snake was initially disoriented. It just, this is the first time this snake has ever been in the world. Where am I? What am I supposed to do now? Giving Moses a chance to escape. Someone else might point out that uh, just because it was a snake, it doesn't necessarily mean that it was poisonous. It doesn't say that this was a cobra or uh, one of the other deadly snakes, a viper of some sort. It just says that it was a serpent. But the true answer is, God didn't want that serpent to strike. That was not his purpose. And God is in control of scorpions and serpents and sheep and uh, renegade preachers. And the truth is, most of the problems in our lives are not there to kill us. They're there to strengthen us if we'll let them. They are to draw us closer to the Lord. Where did Moses run when he dropped the, the rod to the ground? If I was really bold, I would say that he ran to the burning bush, but uh, I have no authority to say that. Obviously, there were two miracles that day. The creation of a serpent, and then its disappearance. You might say that one was a negative miracle, and the other was a positive miracle. But both of them were under the complete control of the Lord. The arrival of that cancer is no more out of God's will or control than the miraculous cure of that cancer. The Lord might permit some fool to start a wildfire. And then the Lord bring a rainstorm and put the fire out just before it gets to your house. Jehovah is not some powerless idol. He is in sovereign control over all things. Ideally, Moses should have as much confidence 
in grasping the serpent's tail as to grab his old shepherd's crook. They're equally as dangerous and equally as helpful when God so determines. My wife and my granddaughter have forced me to watch hundreds of hours of wildlife uh, shows on television. Wild Kratz, remember them? Wasn't it Kratz? Uh, okay. And many, many others, uh, various zoo programs and whatnot. Uh, and I have learned that the very worst place to grab a venomous serpent is by the tail. Those people down in Australia, what is their name? The guy who got killed by the stingray. They're always fighting with snakes. And they tell us, you don't grab one of these serpents by the tail. I have learned that. When my three-foot arm grabs the tail of a six-foot snake, uh, it's not going to end well. That, that creature can swing around there, and within two or three seconds, one or two seconds, milliseconds, I'm a dead guy. He has attacked me. The place to grab a live snake is by the neck, uh, behind his head. Do snakes have necks? Grab it behind its head and control those fangs. But God specifically told Moses to grab its tail. Why grab its tail? Maybe it's because the thing is trying to get out of here. He's trying to run away. But still, grabbing the tail of a big snake like that's just not a good idea, even if it is trying to get away. It's just not the logical thing to do. But the terrifying serpent, under the command of God, instantly became a comforting and useful tool once again. This may be a digression of sorts. It is applicable. Turn to Acts 28, where we have another serpent. If you don't want to turn there, you don't have to. I'm not going to read it. Luke calls the people of Melita a barbarous, kind-hearted people. They were not godly. They were not worshipers of Jehovah. They were ordinary, everyday people without God. Paul, after a terrible Mediterranean hurricane, was uh, on the island. He was out collecting wood to put in a, in a, in a fire and he was attacked by a poisonous viper. It was not just a strike. It was not just a snap and that quick poison. We're told there in, in Acts that the thing latched onto his hand and hung there, pumping that poison into the body of the Apostle Paul. Immediately, the idolatrous people thought that Paul must be a criminal. Yes, he's escaped the storm, but God will not let him get away, and now he's going to die at the, at the hand of this serpent. I guess serpents don't have hands. He's going to die from this serpent, but he didn't. And it didn't take very long before these idolatrous people were saying, oh, he's not a criminal. He's a god. 
to endure this great poison, endure this, this serpent. Anyway, through the event, an opportunity was given to present the gospel to the governor of the island. The serpent was used to open doors for the presentation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The serpents of life, when surrendered and submitted to the Lord, can bring about eternal blessings. If the Lord says, grab it by the tail, grab it by the tail. Yes. Verse 5. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, hath appeared unto thee. Was there anyone present with Moses as he stood before the burning bush when he dealt with this uh, serpent? Anyone there to witness this? Not that I'm aware of. Yes, there was a similar miracle to come up a little later there in the presence of Pharaoh when Aaron threw his rod down and it became a serpent and then the false prophets of Egypt threw their sticks down and they became serpents and Aaron's serpent ate their serpents. Did that impress Pharaoh? No. Were any of the Israelites there to watch that? Doesn't appear so. So why does this give Israel impetus to believe God or to follow Moses? If there were no witnesses to this, Moses could say, Hey everybody, I uh, was used by God to create a serpent and then the serpent went away and they're going to say, Where's your proof? And he's, Oh, it's right here in this crook that I have. No one's going to believe that. So how does that... Produce verse number five. They may believe that the Lord, the God, the Lord God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, uh, has appeared to thee. Remember verse number one. Moses answered and said, Behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice. They will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. How could this private miracle, miles from any of the people of Israel, help Israel to believe that God had commissioned Moses? Jehovah had no intention of turning Israel into a democratic nation. God's proper government is a theocracy. He is the king. He is in charge. When Korah decided he wanted to have as much power as Moses, he was spectacularly judged by the Lord, as we pointed out on Sunday. God had chosen Moses to be prime minister of Israel. To be the representative of God in this theocratic kingdom. After stumbling for decades, aimlessly meandering around the desert for 40 years, Moses had become unfit for leadership. How did God encourage the faith and the obedience of Israel? By strengthening his chosen leader, Moses. Israel needed a lieutenant governor 
who could trust the Lord during the upcoming days of trial and blessing. The wrath of Pharaoh is going to be as scary as a six-foot cobra. Moses, can you trust God to defeat Pharaoh? Well, now he's beginning to say, I think I can. I think I can. What is that in thine hand, Moses? Your old shepherd's rod? Hold it up and watch the waters of the Red Sea spread, divide. The impassable Red Sea is going to be as daunting as the Rocky Mountains in a blizzard. Nothing to God. When Moses becomes the commander, God wants him to be in character, in faith, in submission. The people of Israel will be the people the Lord wants them to be. When they have the leader that they need to have, they're not going to be perfect. In fact, Moses will falter a bit here and there. But if he is convinced of God's power, if he is convinced great things can take place, then these others are going to follow. None of us have to be a Moses or a Joshua or a Paul to learn the lessons of faith. We all have serpents coming into our lives, and they're there at the commandment of the Lord. If at the commandment of the Lord... We grab their tails. Each and every one of them can become instruments of righteousness for the glory of our Savior. And we will become leaders worthy of guiding our families, and guiding our friends, even guiding a nation. When our faith is right, when we are who and what we could be, who knows what great things the Lord will do through us.